All right. We got here Josh Hatter, CEO of Coastal Vacation Properties. And right before this, we had just been talking about kind of our backgrounds. Josh said he had a very unique, quote unquote, shitty background. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Josh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's every day I look in the mailbox for that white male privilege and I, I just never seems to show up. So <laughs> like I said before the show, it's something that I find a lot of strength in now. But, uh, you know, all sorts of abuse. My father died in prison, you know, just, just, and uh, to go along with the normal, you know, lights going out, excuse me, lights going out because the, the electric bill didn't get paid. I think the record for the number of times the police came to the house in a day for a domestic violence call was three. Didn't have a whole lot of faith in the system growing up, but definitely I think have like learned how to draw strength from that. And, you know, hopefully pass that on to some folks in the similar situation. And where, where did you grow up geographically? Outside of DC in Northern Virginia, like 20, 20 miles outside of the district. Got it. Okay. So at about what age did you start getting to the point where, you know, you got into business for yourself? Tell us a little bit more about the transition from that rough upbringing to where you made a change there. It took a while. I, I think I knew as a kid that I wanted to kind of head down this path. But frankly, you know, made my own mistakes early in uh, adulthood too. So I kind of tripped into a corporate career and stayed there 20 years, probably about 10 years too long, but did a, a 20 year sales career, dozen of that with Fortune 500 companies working in the defense industry, primarily supporting the Navy. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly I think learned a lot, but always kind of knew that I wanted more control, you know, over my future and, and wanted to bet on myself. I actually was part of a, a huge layout for a Fortune 500 company back in 2012. Uh, and so that was actually the first time I put a property on VRBO long before the proliferation of Airbnb. I kind of got into short-term rentals. So I lovingly joked that my buddy, my old college buddies at the time would be like, you're doing what? Renting a house? You know, and you had to, there was an education aspect of short-term rentals on Airbnb back then. But now I'm in actual bed of breakfast. And so it's like, no, you know, Actual B&Bs existed before that. Like I'm going back to that, you know? So, you know, I think I know what that looks like now. I'm kind of tripping into entrepreneurship. I actually didn't quit my corporate career until December 19th of 2021. My CVP is the, the property management company that I own. We grew 100% in the first seven months. Surprise, things move a little bit faster when they have your full attention. So yeah. certainly I tried and failed a couple of things along the way too, but really started dabbling in entrepreneurship probably in my late 20s to early 30s, I would say. Absolutely. So, so in your bio, we, we looked at before we hopped on here, it's 2016 jumped off the page as being kind of a pivotal year for you. Could you maybe start there and then kind of you know unpack what the last six, seven years have looked like? Sure. Definitely. Yeah. So 20, I mentioned 2012 with the layoff that, that got shut down almost immediately it was in a, in a legal permissible area, but it was against the HOA. And so got called out by the HOA, got shut down within a couple of months, kind of let that go, tried a few things in between 2012 and 2016. This date just sticks in my mind for whatever reason, probably because it was so pivotal, but February 24th of 2016 was the day that I listed a room in my house. On That's kind of ironic. Today's the 24th of February. Yeah. <laughs> it was exactly seven years ago today. So wow. yeah, listed a room in my three bedroom house on Airbnb, just kind of house hacked for a little while after that, hosted a new guest in my own house every day for probably 18 months, 12, 18 months, and moved out at some point, converted that whole house to be a three bedroom short-term rental eventually sold that and moved into a duplex. 
that duplex is now my last short-term rental that's for sale. And I've moved into actual bed and breakfast as of early last year. So yeah, definitely kind of the jumping off point for, for the short-term rental game. Very nice. And so I know that there's a massive dichotomy and almost like an argument in the real estate world between people that are all about long-term rentals versus short-term rentals. And I know short-term rentals have a lot more, while there's maybe a volatility piece, they also have a, a higher ability to get more gains on that. So what what are your thoughts around the short-term rental world and how do you make sure that it's a sustainable business model during some downtimes where you might not be able to rent it out? Totally. And, and, you know, we made it through COVID, which was quite literally the worst hospitality recession in the history of mankind, right? Hopefully that doesn't happen again in my lifetime. And, you know, if, if I were a gambling man, I probably would bet on that. March of 2020 should have been the first uh, month that my management company managed $100,000 or more in bookings. And, you know, point of comparison, I think we'll probably do like 500 next month, but should have been the first time we broke six figures. We did $760. Literally every booking was canceled except for we hosted emergency responders at one place. So in April was, you know, similarly bad. So you, know, you go from really crushing it to zero. I don't think it lasted long enough to really force some emergency planning. But, you know, to your point, there's the higher probability for volatility. Although some people in short term rentals or in long term rentals, I should say during that also, you know, if you had rental moratoriums where you couldn't evict. You know, because people aren't paying their rent since the economy was so bad. Some of those guys were in a similar position and it's sometimes even longer than what we dealt with on the short term side. To your point, I, I love it because the cash flow potential is there. I'm all about cash flow. Got the, in fact, this, this little pillow, happiness is positive cash flow. Anybody that's seen the Carl Icahn documentary, I stole it from that. But yeah, so for me, it's all about cash flow and that's what I really look at. It's much easier to create consistent cash flow, in my opinion on the short-term side than the long-term side. And it doesn't require as nearly as much scale. I talk to guys that have, you know, a thousand, two thousand, five thousand doors, and, and you can really get the same type of cash flow with 50 or a hundred properties on the short-term side. To the, you know, to your point, I mean, over the last decade with the Fed zero interest rate policy to now we kind of see raging inflation. I think a lot of the, the easy gains have been made. So that's part of the reason for my shift from one asset class to another. But you had this just massive rising wave for the last decade. And so a lot of those, that while the cash flow is not necessarily as compressed, as you start having interest rates double and the asset price is rising, that begins to compress the returns you're going to get in terms of equity appreciation. How do you go about making something that does require a lot more activity passive for yourself? Yeah, that's an interesting story because I'm totally that guy that has a management company because I got quotes from property management companies. And I was like, that's too expensive. I can do it myself, which, you know, it, you can, it, but it's, it is not, it is the opposite of passive. Anybody that's, you know, oh, I, I manage my, my 10 rentals in one hour a week. I just, maybe you manage the manager, but there's just no way to not be involved that much. There's too many crazy things that happen. Hopefully at some point I can write a book with all the guest craziness, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate enough now. I mean, I, I've got, eight or nine employees, you know, and everybody kind of has their own role. The last couple, we've been lucky enough to hire away from higher end hotels. So trying to move more towards that higher end hospitality experience. But that's really a way for, you know, that's the way that I have personally have made it more passive is just building a great team and kind of being picky about the investor clients that I work with as well, too. You don't want somebody that's calling you every single day, you know, that's super hands-on, that doesn't trust you to do your job. That's, again, the opposite of passive. So, 
So, so you have your own portfolio that you're building. You have coastal vacation properties. Now, coastal vacation properties is helping with the property management side, but then also it sounds like you're also offering, is it, is it some type of syndication ability that's there for investors or what, how does that all play so out I, together? Sure. Yeah. I, on the investing side, I've got two partners now. So we are actually looking to scale that brand. We're calling it the True V collection. True V is French for a lucky find, which right. is, this is kind of our design forward, technology forward, post COVID bed and breakfast experience. So B&Bs traditionally are not, you know, targeting the millennials. It's much more of the like 50 to 70 ish demographic. And so we're really kind of going for that, you know, 25 to 40 ish, 45. We like to say the, the Trader Joe's shopper. <laughs> Younger professionals. Our deal is we always look in the urban core of the cities that we're looking at. We want it to be walkable, right? So you can get there and, and walk around the property without ever needing a car for your vacation. So. Kind of trying to change the the B and B experience a bit and make it a little bit more, uh, a little friendlier for you know really frankly the demographic of of myself and my two partners. We have not raised money yet beyond the three of us, but that's kind of what we're looking to do towards the end of this year. So kind of laying out that capital stack now and seeing what that looks like. And to your point, so CVP is is definitely a huge asset for me that I bring to the table in those deals. So my my management company does manage our deals. About a third of what CVP manages, I own either some or a piece of. And then one of the partners is a home builder, specializes in historic home. I am so grateful for these two guys, just the, the way that the, the relationships develop so naturally. And I, I hear so many just awful partnership stories, you know, and it's kind of scary, but I fortunately have not had to deal with any of that. So. I am in this mastermind group called GoBundance. A lot of the guys have a real estate background. And so both of these guys are in GoBundance, but not just great businessmen, but, you know, great husbands, great fathers, you know, just great guys that I actually want to hang around. And so a lot of people aren't, aren't fortunate to be able to have that. And I got super lucky that I didn't, I've, I've not partnered with anybody that I haven't, you know, absolutely had a great relationship with. But frankly, it's just been these two guys. So try to be picky and, you know, figure out if it'll work. I think there's a ton of questions that you really have to ask yourself about the type of partner that you are, not just, you know, what, what you're seeking as you go into these potential relationships. But I've been super fortunate. These are the only two guys I've partnered with so far. That's great. And, and, and one, one last question before I flip it over to Tony to ask some here. I, what are some challenges you guys are having? So this is, a, it's a fairly new and green venture. What are some challenges, some growing pains that you're experiencing? How have you overcome some of those? And, and what are some things you're looking at right now that are kind of your mountains to climb? Sure. I, you know, I'd go back to the education aspect, right? So, you know, for me, it was an education aspect back with Airbnb. And I mentioned, you know, old college buddies laughing. I think it's great that I went through that, you know, 10 years ago in 2012, because I guess 11 years ago now, because I know what that looks like. And so I kind of see a, a similar aspect of that as we shift um, to B&Bs and try to implement our model. We, we bought two of them last year, about to make an offer on the third one here. But, you know, you can kind of see the, the you know, hesitancy pushback from the, the current demographic. Basically, once we close on an asset, my management company will come in, we'll manage it for six or seven months. It helps us understand if there's any other warts that maybe didn't show up on the property in an inspection, anything else that needs to be added to the renovation, what are existing pain points from some of the guests, kind of hear the complaints. But immediately we start kind of optimizing management, 
it is far more labor intensive than short term rentals, but we, we certainly, it's not, it's not full service by any means. So kind of getting people used to that. We switch and most of these older B&Bs have, you know, your quiche or frittata. You know, it's like husband and wife handmade breakfast every morning where we do more like a continental grab and go, which I'm biased, but I think it's delicious. But there's just, you know, a little bit of education to go through that pushback and just like, no, try it. I promise you it's good. So it's, I would say the education aspect, it's just like anything when you're kind of modifying a little bit of a, a model that's out there or like when Airbnb came in and, you know, people didn't know what the heck that was. You know, you have a, you have an education period. I feel super fortunate that I went through that too. So I can kind of know what those jeers look like and kind of see it for what it is as opposed to being frustrated by it. But that's really the biggest thing now I would say is kind of as we reposition, we're, we're actually opening, reopening our first asset March 18th. So just in a few weeks. And as we reopen, you know, obviously our target demographic switches massively then. And so we're super excited about growing the brands going forward as we open this first asset back up. What I love about these types of conversations is, I mean, we're interviewing entrepreneurs all the time, but not every entrepreneur we interview has a basket of different companies and a, a large ecosystem of things that are going on. Now, Landon and I don't like to talk about like our business per se on our podcast, but we run a business advisory firm. There's a lot of moving parts with the entrepreneurs that we work with. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the nuances that goes into this? Cause you make it seem so easy, but when you're opening all these multiple entities, you know, asset protection becomes a really big piece, tax strategy with the management company classifying as a real estate professional. Can you share a little bit more about how you go about that utilizing the tax code to your advantage, how you're structuring these entities and what all that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. I think my wife would be the first one to tell you it's not easy. These transactions are never easy. And you, you look at 50 of them before, you know, I guess just to throw out a range, I'm super transparent, but the last one was three and a half million and the one before that was almost four. And so, you know, now we're looking in the kind of five and a half ish range. And so, you know, I, you, you heard a little bit of, you know, slice of my background. I certainly did not come from money, right? So as these deals get bigger and bigger, I'm probably grumpier as we get closer to a transaction closing. She can kind of just see the stress because I, I just kind of try to keep it to myself. But there's just so many moving parts to your point. And, you know, another piece of this is you have not just the asset, like you said, but also the operating company. You have the B&B itself, right? And you have that for every single property. And, you know, you want to set that up to your point about asset protection. Somebody slips and falls down the stairs. You want them to sue the B&B and that needs to be a separate asset, separate entity from the property itself. So, yeah, basically we're kind of running it up into ultimately a real estate holding company that will hold the actual real estate assets and then an opco holding company that flows up the B&B assets themselves. And then the overarching company is the true B collection. So yeah, that's all kind of being set up now. Actually, I just talked to one of the partners yesterday, but yeah, you want to make sure that you do that right out of the gate. Our big, hairy, audacious goal, if you will, is to buy a thousand keys or 50 of these properties over the next 10 years. And so you can't do that without having the right legal infrastructure. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of I dotting and T crossing that a lot of people don't do when they first get started, especially in real estate. If you're just buying these in your personal name, not under their own business entities, it's going to be tough to then put them back in because you might have to go get a new loan for that right. in, in different scenarios. So, I mean, I love the insight that you brought there. Now, from a tax piece, because I mean, real estate provides some of the best tax advantages ever, whether it's depreciation or cost segregation. Can you share a little bit more with our listeners about what the tax situation looks like? You don't have to obviously share what you pay in taxes, but share a little bit more about how you go about utilizing the tax code to your benefit as an entrepreneur. 
Sure. Yeah, it's there were definitely some interesting pieces of legislation from Trump, love him or hate him. But yeah, bonus depreciation on short-term rentals was at 100%. It's now at 80%, finally starting to step down. You know, you mentioned cost segregation, so we do that as well. Especially, we, we basically are investing between 20 and 25% of the sale price of an asset into these renovations. And so the perfect time to do a cost seg is right as we're finishing. So actually, just last week scheduled the cost seg for the first B&B that's about to reopen. But for people that aren't familiar with a cost segregation study, you're basically bucketizing your expenditures. And as you've done a renovation, put a lot of money into a place, that's the best time to do it. So depending on the type of bucket that it falls in, it's either typically a five-year, seven-year, or 10-year accelerated depreciation bucket. And so rather than taking the whole cost basis and dividing it over 27 and a half years, you can kind of accelerate some of that. Typically, these holding periods are like five to seven years anyway. So it winds up just really kind of being a tax hack, like you said. So I know we're coming up here on around 10 minutes left, and we like to usually you know, gear over into kind of vision and, and some things and lessons you've learned along the way. What is the long-term vision? You mentioned a thousand keys. Can you expand on that vision a little bit more? Like, where do you see this going and growing? Sure. Yeah. So we, all three of us are based in Charleston, South Carolina. So that's kind of our number one target here. I think we learned with the first two assets that we got pretty lucky. You know, typically as you get bigger, they're owned by kind of bigger hospitality groups, right? And so unless they're selling the whole company, they're typically not peeling off an asset unless it's underperforming. And then, you know, there's a whole, whole different type of due diligence you got to um, go through to make sure you're not buying a, a, a dud. But yeah, so we're, we're looking in cities across the Southeast. So kind of our next markets in order are Savannah, Asheville, Greenville, and Nashville. And really kind of all within a day's drive. Nashville is like six, seven hours from Charleston. So I think that the B&B concept is huge in the South. But I think the, the biggest upside is the length of the peak season in the Southeast. So you know, we've got the heat and humidity, which is miserable in, in like August. But people are still coming to visit here. Where right. You know, I know of some folks that are doing similar things in the Northeast. And it's just much harder to make the numbers work if you've got a you know three to five month peak season as opposed to 10. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the big, yeah. To your, so to your point. Expansion. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really, you know, buying, I mean, we've, we've, I've got contractors that actually will flex with us as we, we grow in different, as we grow in different states now. So my management company will keep managing those assets. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really kind of the, the, how many keys can we get to and make sure that we're buying constructive, great deals like the first couple that we found. Kind of our basic investment framework is a 10 cap or 20% cash on cash. And so, you know, that sounds kind of aggressive, but we typically crush those goals. So we're pretty picky with what we buy. And if something's not even close to that, we don't really reach for deals. You know, you never know, maybe something will become available in another year or two, but we don't try to reach just to get another deal under our belts. Yeah, that, that was one of the questions I wanted to interject about is like, how do you go about predicting the cash flow within your models when you're running that stuff when it's obviously not guaranteed that these people are going to short-term rent out places? Yeah, it's it's super interesting because it is, I, I won't say less, predict, you, you have, it's not like a long-term where you have somebody maybe signing a one, two, three, whatever your lease or on the commercial side, right? Where it's five or 10 years. The, our lead time is we're only, I think we're back at to like 76 days now post COVID. It, it was much shorter than that, like three weeks. Right. And so you kind of have to be able to, to look at your history. I mean, I'm, I'm a big data nerd. So I'm, I'm using numbers to look at this. Right. But I'm constantly evaluating 
average daily rate versus, versus occupancy. Coming out of COVID, you had a massive increase in average daily rate because people, you know, been cooped up for a while, you know, anywhere from six to 18 months, depending on the city that you were in. And they were really willing to pay anything to kind of go do their normal family vacation. That has tapered off. So I think it's, it's understanding the data and you've got to be able, I, I call it part art and part science. You have to be able to see the data, which is a science piece of it, but also interpret it and kind of predict a little bit, you know, we have some ec- economic weakness. What could the impact of that be? And then even looking back, I'm always looking at the last couple of years of data. My goal is always to make more money on less turnover. And so one of the super interesting things about this asset class, as you buy from older owner operators, they're super proud that they run at like 88, 90, 91% occupancy. And the reality is you can jack up rates and make more on an 80% occupancy, you know, better cash flow on less turnover, less wear and tear. And so, you know, from a management perspective, in terms of optimizing the management piece, that's kind of my, my game is trying to make more money on less turnover. Hmm. So for someone who, and just to kind of zoom out, obviously we're talking about specific strategy, but for somebody who is late 20s, early 30s, maybe they own a property that they live in, but they're, they know that real estate's the place to be. Like they know they want to get involved in real estate to some level. What advice do you have for somebody that's just now trying to dip their toes in the water in general into that asset class? Yeah, I bought my first house in 2006. So before that bubble crashed, and I was 24 years old, definitely should not have qualified for that loan. I remember having that conversation with my loan officer. It was, that was like the preferred lender for the neighborhood. And I slept on it, called her back. I was like, I need a fixed rate. Otherwise I'm not comfortable. She literally laughed in my face as well. Right. So there's a, there's a theme here. And that company was out of there, the 13th largest mortgage lender in the country. And they were out of business within two years. So, you know, being able to not just follow the, the crowd. Right. And have some independent thought. I think it's important to have those types of people around you that are asking you the tough questions. But gosh, I mean, real estate, it's, it's because of the leverage. Right. I mean, and even though rates may be, at, you know, five, six percent, even seven percent now, like if that's still super cheap compared to history. I would suggest people zoom out and look back at like the early 80s, right? When the Fed funds rate was 18, 20 percent. I mean, what we have now is much more normalized. Inflation needs to come down. But when you look at real estate as an asset class and zoom out 20, 30, 50 years, it's very hard to lose money. Don't ever put yourself in a position where you're forced to sell either because cash flow, you know, isn't there. And then you wind up not having the equity because the market's not as strong, right? So never, never put yourself in a position where you absolutely have to sell an asset. But if you can hold on to things, dirt is always going to appreciate over a very long period of time. I love it, man. I love it. So now as we near the end of this podcast, I mean, this podcast is called the Consistency Wins Podcast. So consistency is a big theme for us. And just hearing everything about yourself, there's a lot of adversity that you had to go through and you had to stay consistent through that time and be real disciplined about leaning into who you genuinely are and what your vision was. Where do you see that showing up in your life? What does consistency actually mean to you? Yeah, I I, uh, read this book by Hal Elrod called The Miracle Morning. And I think that's and that's only maybe five months ago. And so I kind of took this version of that. He's got like an hour every morning. I've kind of condensed that. Everybody needs to find what works for them. But little things like gratitude every morning, you know, what three things are you grateful for in your life right now? And then even goals every single day, right? Like, so you can have this, hey, what's your 10-year vision? Well, what are your goals for today? 
And I think it took me probably 45 to 60 days into that to realize how much I was accomplishing on the things that I probably was putting off and procrastinating on because I had just taken these little bite-sized chunks every single day before you know it, it's done. So yeah, I think that that daily consistency, you've got to find a daily routine that works and balance as well too. I mean, I, I think that's becoming much more talked about now. You know, it's, it, I, I feel like 10, 15, 20 years ago and, and certainly longer than that, it was more you know, oh, I'm a hustler. I'm, I'm a CEO of my startup and I work a hundred hours a week. And I think people are talking about that more now and, and how unhealthy that is. Uh, but, you know, having able, having some friends where you're able to really be yourself and kind of, you know, be honest, be transparent and actually talk about where you are in your head and your feelings and stuff. Like it's, it's not a bad thing. So. I think the world is coming around to that being a little bit healthier and that's a good thing as well too, but that's all part of it. Yeah. I mean, the new way to brag is how much time you get to spend with your family. For sure. It is. It's it's awesome, man. Thank you for bringing that perspective, man. So with that being said, we're going to drop everything that Josh has in our, in our description, in our bio, feel free to connect with him offline here. Josh, thank you so much for coming on, man. It has been a pleasure. What I love about real estate and we've had a lot of people in real estate come on our podcast, but it's always been something different because there's so many different strategies that you can lean into. And so thank you for bringing your perspective in. Have a great yeah. rest of your day. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Absolutely.